I am Sergio Brodsky, and I'm a brand and foresight strategist. And I'm Jazz Giuliani, the editor of Marketing Mag. Welcome to Futurecast, the podcast where we talk with professional futurists, renowned academics, and high-profile business leaders from around the world. In this series, we think about the future so that we can meaningfully change the present. The time is now. Join us for better futures. This episode of Futurecast is proudly sponsored by Adobe. To discover the skills marketers need today and in the future, visit marketo.com or click the link in our episode notes. And so pulling back a little bit from obviously a very large topic, I was wondering about the future back approach and whether it's just for big players or whether it's something that can also be applied to smaller businesses and whether you had any examples that you could share of that. Well, I definitely think uh, it's not just for the big players, it's for the smaller ones too, because really anyone who could view that their future is in five to 10 years, as the French poet Paul Valéry said, the future's not what it used to be. So <laughs> anyone that could uh, see their, whether small or large, that five to 10 years could face a lot of trends and potential disruptions, which are break, which are clear breaks in trends, if that have that potential, then there's the importance to be able to think in a future back way, to be able to spend time forecasting and developing foresight into the five to 10 year horizon. Um, I would just say that as a matter of principle. I think the reason sometimes it's viewed for small companies as not as important is they're like, well, we have a lot of growth ahead of us. And so, you know, we're not in any place to worry about having to stagnate or having commoditization. And I guess there's some truth in that. And certainly a small company that is on a growth tear would say they don't need to think about it as much. But then again, you know, we call today's world, it's an army, U.S. Army term, the VUCA world, the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And, you know, with that being the case, with the level of progress uh, in a good sense of technology, you know, whether we're talking about big data, artificial intelligence, or, you know, all of these different types of uh, information technologies and just the development of knowledge itself, you know, the nature of how things are moving, you know, even though it's a bit trite to say is, you know, things are moving faster, change is fa happening faster than ever. Well, yeah, it actually is. And so therefore, I think having one foot into the future, well, or one at least toe into the future, being in the present is going to be important for any any company, large or small. In terms of examples of, of, of a small company that... Um, you know, is doing that. Well, I mean, I'm not sure I could name one, but I could just say Inesite itself. You know, we've hmm. we've dipped our toe into the five to 10 years. And when you, when you see how the consulting industry is going to change, just as some aspects of what we do get commoditized by, you know, the availability of, again, you know, artificial intelligence and what the management of data has become um, and other ways that companies can adopt doing some of the activities we do ourselves. We've had to future back our work. We are now a part of a larger consulting firm, but Inesight itself is is a hundred people. So we're not very big. And we've had to look and decide how to do things in a way that could embrace some of this, you know, more rules-based consulting and how we can bring our thinking to that as opposed to some of our larger and bigger and more expensive projects we can do some things where we're aiding 
our clients to do it for themselves, but just trying to help be more of a collaborative, supportive model as opposed to, you know, kind of owning the deliverable for them. And that's been that's been based on our doing our own future back. Mm, well, it's nothing better than the lived experience of the future back approach. Yes. <laughs> and when it comes to lived experiences, tell us about some of your best clients, the most progressive ones, but also some of the hardest ones, those that you know were maybe resistant to dipping their toes into the future or that were contrarians to something. And what have you learned from that? Well, it's a great question, Sergio. Well, I mean, I... I think uh, I can't find a better client to talk about, and and it, and why it took quite a bit of space in the lead from the future is Johnson and Johnson, and their work with disease interception. So Johnson Johnson is comprised of a pharmaceutical business, a medical device business, and a consumer business. Been working them as a whole for a very long time, but but in particular the Janssen, their pharmaceuticals division, um, through the leadership of their head of research and development who is was a practicing oncologist who led a cancer institute who came over to Johnson Johnson and had his own personal vision about not just trying to treat disease through you know through the manufacture of pharmaceuticals and the pill but also to intercept and prevent and literally cure diseases that would be afflicting, especially in the domain of cancer, things like lung cancer and colon cancer, you know, um, how could you, how could you identify the disease as it's starting to manifest before it ever became any kind of stage one cancer? Um, and so Bill Height had this vision that between life sciences and what was happening, you know, with information technology and the personalized medicine, you know, how could you how could you begin to almost do what he called a check engine light that would say, you know, through the diagnostics, you could, you could start to, and also through, you know, the genome project and, and through understanding people's proclivity to get certain kinds of cancers that you could actually be able to be thinking about the ability to be much better about intercepting. You know, we certainly do this already with like colon cancer, you know, we've, People get colonoscopies to be able to identify if they're starting to develop polyps, but becoming much more um, assertive and much more deliberate and, and, and much greater investment in doing that. And and so, you know, Johnson Johnson embarked on on this effort. Bill Height's vision had to be converted into the company's vision. And long and short of it is they were able to spend time. Uh, this was in 2013, 2014, out actually not just five to 10 years, but more like 15 years out towards 2030. And by looking out to 2030, they were able to think about all of these major forces that I talked about, you know, of thinking about the convergence of them. If you think about life sciences and information technology and thinking about personalized medicine and disease diagnosis in general, you know, this idea of precision medicine and thinking about different healthcare delivery models, they put that all together to realize that in 2030, they could envision that there really would be the ability to intercept and prevent diseases. And so they created what they called World Without Disease and the Disease Interception Accelerator, which had put in place by developing a different group and 
by taking that 2030 vision, by being able to think about what that future would look like and then starting it on a clear path today, which the work primarily is around lung cancer and what they call the lung cancer initiative. And how do you start intercepting the disease of lung cancer, uh, get to the place to prevent it. And, you know, so it started with a vision. It's converted that to a way to think about how the disease interception accelerator would complement the core pharmaceuticals business, the treatment world. Because by the way, trying to develop a, a business around of disease not happening can be very difficult in terms of how do you make money on that? What's the business model? I mean, certainly diagnostics can be paid for, but but a lot of the things of something not hap- preventing it from ever happening, if you could imagine diabetes, well, how do you get paid for that? You know, because the disease didn't happen, you know, because not everything's going to be about a, an actual diagnostic. So they, anyway, long story short is they were able to take that vision, walk it back, into a set of initiatives that have started today with lung cancer. And I think it's just incredibly inspiring. You know, it's back to the UN set of initiatives, right, of really making the world a better place. Um, You know, they took and developed a vision that's more than just a simple statement. It's actually a full narrative. Um, They have, like I said, initiatives underway. Um, They've been able to do this in a way that actually to make progress outside of just traditional pharmaceuticals and all the demands for money there. And so I think that's what has been inspiring and powerful for me. And and the fact that it, they're trying to make the world sustainable and, you know, and, and their company sustainable, not just profitable. So to me, that I think is the most powerful and the most, I think, progress with, with an incredibly inspiring type of purpose that's part of their vision. So that, that to me, I think would be the one that I think uplifts me, you know, in, in terms of success on a, I wouldn't say a failure, but, but I would say, I mean, at least not yet. An, an annoying one, a very irritating one. Yeah, the, the irritating one I would have is that, um, and I can't really speak to the name of the company. I certainly wouldn't want to do that. But, you know, a consumer company that, you know, has repeatedly tried to do business model innovation and really never has, even though it's had it as its desired because it wants to get beyond sort of its core, you know, consumer packaged goods business. And it's been annoying in the sense that sees its failure, if you will, at least in the sense of not really ever having succeeded in business model innovation, and yet keeps trying to think of new ways to develop more innovative ideas that are going to be more accepted, trying to take all the different literature on business model innovation, including insights. You know, we wrote a book called Reinvent Your Business Model. And so they've you know, really tried to put a discipline down and a process and they've worked with even, uh, you know, firms that focus on, on accelerating ventures and, you know, come from the, them themselves, the venture capital world. And yet they don't really have, they don't really take seriously strategy, let alone vision. Like they, they don't take long-term strategy and really develop it out. And, and so it's been frustrating that they've been so consumed with process, whether it's, you know, Six Sigma and Lean from the core operations side, or whether it's the business model innovation process 
from you know the innovation team so they're so process oriented that they you know you could say i guess future back is a process but they they put them into teams but they haven't brought it up to think in this plan in this way at the leadership level and it is just remained frustrating for how they can't seem to take this on for leadership like somehow leadership is just meant to you know execute on all these things and keep adding new innovation teams but yet not really taking the learning and the exploration and the effort of the leadership themselves through a future back thinking and planning process and that that has been that has been really frustrating <laughs> What skills will marketers need to drive growth in the years ahead? Download Marketing 2025 to discover how 700 executives imagine the future and the top skills and tools you'll need to master. From the role of machine learning to neuromarketing, learn what will satisfy customers' ever-evolving expectations. Download it now from a link in our episode notes. I can totally understand that. I think I, I, during this this whole pandemic, I've been reading a lot of Nassim Taleb, uh, you know, especially because of all these random things happening to us, things that we can't even, you know, uh, make sense of. And uh, one thing that he, he wrote on Antifragile was that, uh, I mean, talking about academics and uh, how they make use of theories, but never are able to build anything. Of course, not all of them, but many of them. And he created this term, intellectuals yet idiots, which uh, I think I think is a very interesting analogy to what you're saying, because uh, it sounds like a lot of talk, but not, e not even the first step of the yeah. walk. So rather than focusing too much on the process, let, let's get on to action. Let's let's tinker. Let's try and experiment and learn learn really quick from our Well, you know, and there's one good example that uh, that uh, you know, back to what can be transformative, what to your point about getting to the place of really learning, you, you know, I mentioned that uh, Satya Nadella, when he took over Microsoft, he he had an epiphany that was actually a, because of his wife who gave him the Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. And, and in Mindset, basically, as it translated to him Satya thinking about Microsoft, he said, you know, we've become a culture of know-it-alls and we need to turn into a culture <laughs> of learn-it-alls. And I think that that thinking is just is exactly spot on to, you know, not just the overall culture, because absolutely, you know, any culture should be, if they really want to innovate, they need to be learn-it-alls. They need to have that humility. Um, but, but in particular, I think leadership teams, the ones that hold the resource allocation process, have to be much more oriented towards exploration and envisioning and discovery and 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 not so much just operate and execute. Because leadership teams end up getting into their own routine, you know, that they don't have they just sort of form up for themselves and they end up saying, you know, give me the data, give me the information. Everybody's so data hungry and analytically oriented, um, you know, we'll, we'll take this data, we'll analyze and we'll make decisions from there. And they won't take the time and the space to actually diverge before they converge to consider 
you know, what the future could hold and its implications and how they could imagine things to be in a different way. And that to me is part and parcel to really a failure of learning. I mean, we have organizations that are learning and people are delegated and designated to do that, but the learning needs to include the top folks as well. And and that exploration, that that focus on being learn-it-alls and not just know-it-alls, it certainly is what's been transformative for Microsoft. And And that actually is a lot about what Lead from the Future is about, which is really taking the learning game to the next level and learning from the future and then leading from it, as opposed to, you know, just assuming that everything, the present forward fallacy, right, that you can just increment your business into the future indefinitely, which is more dangerous than ever, you know, just with the, with the ever-changing world the way we have it. Yeah. And Mark, you sort of touched on leadership a little bit, which is something that I really wanted to ask you about because we tend to see visionary leaders in a certain way, but um, you say that entrepreneurial vision can be learned by individuals or even at a cultural or organizational level. Do you think that there are certain characteristics that you need to lead from the future or is it a matter of perspective? Well, I absolutely do think that there, there are certain things that can be learned individually and organizationally. One is, I think it starts with building a common language, a common vocabulary, right? To be able to start having a conversation that says, what's the difference between present forward and future back? And why is future back so important to properly plan for the future and to bring it to life, right? So you're not extrapolating today into that future. So you can have a whole conversation about that conversation about what's the difference between vision, a true vision versus strategy, you know, so building language, building, what does it really mean about faint signals versus trends? And what is a true disruption, you know, a break in the pattern, you know, not the way we use disruptive innovation, but in the way that you're using it in terms of, of, of forecasting mm-hmm. or backcasting. I mean, all these things should be kind of brought into a vocabulary um, in an awareness that we can overcome some of the biases, right? You know, the bias that you can't do, the future can't be predicted, so why bother, right? And, and <laughs> you know, we're not, as you know, we're not looking to predict the future. We're looking to learn and we're not looking for certainty. We're looking for some clarity so that there has to be back to mindset, a, a mindset change. There's all these misunderstandings about how to take advantage and learn from the future. And and so I think it first starts with with developing a vocabulary and a common language, and that can take individuals a long way to becoming much more visionary. I'm not here to say, you know, like Steve Jobs of Apple or Jeff Bezos of Amazon, or, you know, you pick your business visionary or take your your visionaries that have, uh, you know, changed the world for the better. Um, You know, Nelson Mandela of South Africa or what Winston Churchill did in World War II. You know, they had something that I think was intuitive, but I think it can be learned and it can be developed through just a general process. And that's what I say, you know, start with the vocabulary, start with the way of thinking, and then begin to just simply carve out the time. You know, I've talked, tell organizations over and over, you know, one of the biggest steps forward is just to say, are you willing to commit to carve out 
in a distinct way, five to 10% of your time, maybe it's as a leadership team, four hours every couple months uh, to start to be able to make sure you're in a different mode of learning. You're not focused on operate and execute. You're focused on explore and discover. You're comfortable with ambiguity. You're willing to debate and discuss. You're willing to diverge before you converge. All those kinds of things. So if we can build language, if we can carve out some time, if we can get to maybe some starting points to realize that there is a lot to be learned from the future, then we can begin to prioritize it. But right now, I think we're not prioritizing it because either A, we don't think you can do anything with it, or B, we don't think it's that important compared to all everything we have to do now. So those are some of my advice on how to how to get individuals and organizations to start to build, you know, build the mindset and the skill set um, to be able to to lead from the future. But when it comes to entire industries, is it actually possible to apply the future back approach and change an industry? And I'm asking for, you know, very much out of self-interest. And I want to bring it closer to home and home is marketing, mm -hmm. marketing, media, advertising, communications, is, which is an industry sure. that requires some transformation. We are bleeding everywhere mm -hmm. right now. And the COVID has not helped us at all. So have you actually done this type of work by employing future back in uh, in an entire industry, taking this wholesale approach instead of one company at a time, is it possible? Well, I think absolutely, and and indirectly we have. And and the way the way I would think about that, Sergio, is that when we work with companies, we talk about well, you know, and it's just as part of really future back is you have to think in a systems based view. So as you look into the future, five to ten years, and you look at the you know, again, the future environment, you know, based on, you know, where's the consumer, the customer and their important jobs to be done based on trends and other factors, then you need to think about, well, then what is the implication to the, from a systems view, what's the ecosystem, if you will, going to look like suppliers and buyers and, you know, the whole nature of how, how things are going to work from a systemic point of view. Um, you know, like who are the different players, the stakeholders that are going to be there and how do they interact with each other? You have to, systems replace systems when there's transformation. And so what does the new system look like? Which really begins to start to talk about when you talk about a value network or a, a value chain, I think you start to get into industry structure. And so then you can start to look at, well, what's the industry structure of the future going to be based on having looked at, at the, the ecosystem of trends and implications? And that begins to, I think, uh, allow you to be in to give a perspective based on the way the ecosystem looks, what you're going to do about it. So, so I absolutely think the systems level thinking, which I talk a lot about, is really really mm -hmm. does put you in a place that thinking about industry. Certainly, if you think about Apple, which I wrote about as tr as being intuitively one of the consummate future back examples in that they, in 2000, looked out to 2010 and saw a different world for computing, starting with the digital hub, but then seeing a different world for consumer electronic devices, the the approach that Apple took, which was not just product innovation, but business model innovation, 
transformed not just the computing industry, but transformed the music industry, transformed the way we think about um, tele telephony today, right? In terms of, you know, every smartphone is really a mini computer and, a, you know, it's based on a platform that drives about, you know, developing apps. And that transformed, you know, multiple industries in doing that. So, so I think, I think when you drive from the future back and you think systemically about how all things can work together, you almost by definition are thinking as much from an industry lens as from an individual company lens or an individual firm lens. Sounds like there's a lot of possibility with that approach. Yeah, and hope. And hope as well, which we need a little bit of, and which is why the whole reason really that we're creating this podcast to speak with people like yourself and to to understand your ways of thinking and see if you know, we can transform this industry. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, the other way to look at it is, you know, put yourself in the future and think about where things could be as opposed to where things are. And just by going through that work, you start to develop insights from the foresights, right? And those can those can mm -hmm. be themselves, you know, the start of some different choices that are made about how things are going to be done in the future. Exactly. And that sort of brings me to my next question, which is if you're going to set an inspiring vision for marketing and brands and media and advertising, what would it be? And how could we sort of thread that back to the, the present? But before you answer that, let me, let, me, let me give you two points of information. And that's, that's from research. What research tells us is that people don't care about brands and that they hate ads. Mm. Off you go. Mm. They don't. <laughs> give us a beautiful vision of the future. They don't care about <laughs> brands and they hate ads. Wow. Um, well, I, I think I would, <laughs> I'm not sure. Let's first talk about brands. I mean, and you certainly, you both are, have much greater expertise in this field than I do, but everything that I've seen and understood is uh, people really do care about brands and, and they, they care about them, whether they explicitly understand that they care about them or not, they do care about them because they connote, you know, they connote a certain um, reliability or they connote a certain um, uh, connection experientially or whatever. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I couldn't say how branding is going to change in the future other than other than I guess my own point of view about it is just in a world that becomes busier and more complicated and more competitive and, you know, more noisier. I think brands have to drive through purpose uh, more than ever. You know, we'd say job to be done based brands, you know, like we, we use the example mm -hmm. of Milwaukee tools that had a Sawzall, you know, that it became very clear with that what that product does, right? So maybe you could argue branding needs to have more purpose-driven or jobs to be done driven in the nature of the branding. But I can't imagine, you know, how individuals can get along without, especially on differentiated products, without without branding. Um, now, advertising is a different story because the medium for what communicates those brands could be changing. And, you know, and you know, just from the 
the reality of we're bombarded with so much information that certainly there could be fatigue. And so the, the form and format of advertising may need to change to fit within the circumstance. But I guess I would look at it as I can I can't really give answers. I can only say how to think about this. In branding mm-hmm. and advertising, I guess I would just ask the question, what what do people hire branding and advertising to do? And then how is the circumstance changing uh, in the world and in the future, you know, back to anticipate, not just address today, to be able to say, you know, who's the consumer, what's their job to be done, and what's the circumstance, and how is that different mm-hmm. than today? And then begin to say, what what really is branding hired to do it, you know, tightly coupled with what advertising is trying to do? Yeah, no, the job to be done approach is, is such a good one. It's it, it's it's so helpful in terms of forgetting about the obvious, you know, ditching the assumptions and really thinking about what is this brand actually performing for me? What is it actually solving right here, right now? And it's it's it can be very counterintuitive as well. Uh, I'm, I'm a marketer, but I'm also a foresight practitioner. And uh, in my line of work in this space, I rarely interact with marketers. Uh, it's mainly uh, UN bu- bureaucrats <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, business people as well, uh, you know, senior corporate leaders, but I rarely find a marketer there. Do you have an, ex- an, an experience in working with marketers when applying future back or, or any other type of foresight uh, uh, engagements? And uh, if, if you do, how, how do marketers differ from others when working with you? Well, we haven't, to be honest, we haven't worked too much other than, again, kind of with our own thinking, you know, with our own marketing, whether we've literally worked. Well, I take that back. I mean, we, I guess we've worked a little bit with marketing in the technology world to develop sort of thought leaders uh, for the world of work from home and virtualization. Um, you know, the whole idea mm-hmm. that... Uh, we're going to be a lot more remote um, in the future, even past COVID. So we've done some work there and kind of thinking and marketing for an IT firm who um, who would want to sort of, based on the technology they have, be thought leaders and thinking strategically and visionary-wise about where is work from home going in the long term, right? And then further be able to support the products and the and the engineering that they're doing to help support, you know, to support uh, organizations that are trying to be more remote and to think systemically about it. Um, I would, I would just say though, just like an enterprise can go future back, a marketing function or any function in the organization can think future back when it needs to itself think about having to transform. So, you know, I talk a lot about, the future back approach is not just for an enterprise future back, you know, thinking and planning, but it can be functionally, you know, HR and marketing, um, and even the finance organization, you know, we think about it for individual innovation teams. So, so I think you can, I think you can think about it from a, you know, from these individual organizations and say, you know, really what's marketing for this company going to need to do? How does it anticipate, where it needs to shape the organization from a marketing perspective um, and, and, and clearly do its own future back, uh, not just think about it that the, 
the top leadership in the enterprise have to do that. Mm, that's thanks. that's wonderful. And that's a great message that thinking about the future and working with the future is something that is for all of us, not only for the senior executive leadership of a company. And uh, it's something that I believe is also quite hopeful and motivating that we all can disrupt our own paths, our, our, our careers, our professions and our lives. And on that note, I would like to thank you so much for this conversation. It was so inspiring. I've learned so much. And uh, I, I'm, I have no doubt that everyone listening to this will, will feel the same well, way. Well, thank you, Sergio. Thank you so thank much, Thank you, Jazz. <laughs> really appreciate having me on your podcast. And uh, it was a real pleasure. And I learned a lot just talking to you. Beautycast is the Marketing Mag podcast series brought to you by Content Brains and presented by Marketing Mag. Futurecast is produced by Joanne Davies, Head of Content Brains and Publisher of Marketing Mag. And Jazz Giuliani, Editor of Content Brains and Marketing Mag. Our executive producer is Sergio Brodsky, with original music and audio production by Sam Boone. If you want further details on our podcast or our guests, please visit the episode notes in this podcast. Remember to subscribe to Futurecast so you never miss an episode.